So you say, God, you're great and all, but what you really need to do is to catch me up. You gotta give me the desires of my heart, otherwise I'm just not gonna feel full. You might say, God, you're great and all, but what I really need is beauty. What I really need is greater levels of influence. What I really need is greater health. I need you to answer that prayer that I can have greater health like I did in my youth. And so it's always this kind of conditional offer to follow God. God, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Hello, my name is Rebecca. I've been at Gateway since I was like three years old. I'm married to Mike and we have four kids, um, and I serve in the ministry of youth and uh, kids' church. Our text today is from 1 Samuel 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. And his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted the bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, they displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If you haven't grabbed your Bibles yet, I would love for you to do that. If you don't have a Bible, grab your smartphone. If you don't have a smartphone, we got Bibles in the back. Feel free to go grab one of those. We just love for you to have the word of God in front of you this morning. Uh, so if you have that, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is where we will be today. Um, we've been learning throughout this series that the overarching theme of the books of Samuel can be described this way. God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. God, hum uh, ex God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. And I think last week was just a perfect example of that. It started quite poorly when Israel, they tried to co-opt God, getting God to do what they wanted. They said to themselves, let's go get the ark of the Lord, bring it into battle with us, and in that way, God will have to bless us. God will have to give us the victory. God will have to do what we want him to do. And the end result of that was God relinquished his hand of blessing. 30,000 of them died. They lost the ark of the Lord, and they went back to God with their tail between their legs, and they said, what happened? Well, here's what happened. God humbled the proud. God humbled the proud. 
But this is how the story ends. Samuel calls all the people of Israel together, and he says, turn to the Lord with all your heart. Turn back from your wicked ways. Get rid of your Asherahs. Get rid of your Baals. Get rid of all of your false idols, and turn to the Lord with all of your heart. And Israel did that. And on account of that, God exalted the humble. And that's where our story ended. And so we looked at these words that describe the humility of Israel last week. It's this, repentance, worship, sacrifice. Repentance, worship, sacrifice. This is the heart of God for God's people. That we would repent, that's a word for turn, we would make a 180 degree turn to following the Lord that we would worship him, make much of him, and that we would see the sacrifice of our God and what he has done for us. And we saw all the culmination of that is found in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the one to whom this story points, the sacrifice of Jesus. And so I, I waited until this week to share with you the outcome of this story. So if you got your Bible, I want you to just turn back to chapter 7, verse 7 with me. And I want us to read just a couple of verses here. This is where the story ends. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mitzpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. Verse 8. They said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb, again, see Jesus in this, Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines, threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Down to verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone, he set it up between Mitzpah and Shen, he named it Ebenezer, which means stone of help, saying thus far, the Lord has helped us. So here's what I find uh, quite remarkable about this story. You might recall last week, the story started with a name. The wife of Phineas, when she discovers that her father-in-law, her brother-in-law, and her husband have all been put to death, she named her firstborn son Ichkabod, which means, where is the glory of God? Where is the weight of God? Where is the light of God? The blessing of God's hand has diminished. The proud have been humbled. But the story ends with a new name, Ebenezer, stone of help. The humble have been exalted on account of their repentance, turning toward the Lord with all their might. And that's verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone. He set it up between Mitzpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far, the Lord has helped us. He's helped us. So here's the principle that I want to lay out at your feet. I put it this way in your note sheet. If God's people will humble themselves and repent, that's to turn, and put their faith in his sacrifice, God will deliver them. Repentance, worship, sacrifice. Repentance, worship, sacrifice. This is the heart of God for his people. 
What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, that you would turn toward him and see that he is your protector. He is your provider. He is your deliverer. He gives you everything you need and more. All of it he gives to you. This is the gospel in a nutshell within the story. Every book in your Bible points to this reality. This is what God wants to do for you. One of the ways that we see this is in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, that's repent, from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. And so God, in this story, he brings about deliverance. God is their king. God is their king. And if this story ended at chapter 7, we could say, wow, what an incredible story. But I'm not sure about your Bible, but my Bible keeps going. And it goes from great to quite poor, just like that. So if your Bibles are open, look how quickly things go downhill. It's not like six chapters from now. It's not even like two chapters from now. It's the very next verse. Now, admittedly, we have just jumped 25 years-ish from chapter 7 to chapter 8. We don't hear the story of Samuel getting married. We don't hear the story of him having kids. We just suddenly discover that his two adult sons are just like the sons of Eli. They're turning away from God. They're not following God. But the author of this story wants you to feel just how jarring it is to go from God is our king to what we read next. Chapter 8, verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. Your sons do not follow your ways now. Appoint, to lead, uh, appoint a king to lead us such as the other nations have. That's an important phrase. We'll come back to it. Verse 6. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. They've rejected me. So here's what you have to know. It was not categorically wrong for Israel to request a king. It wasn't wrong. That's a common misconception. We see throughout the first eight books of the Old Testament, almost every single one foreshadows Israel eventually having a king. The book of Genesis does this. The book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, we have Moses who says, one day you will have a king. Uh, if you're taking notes, consider writing down Deuteronomy 17, which gives the characteristics for what Israel should look for in a future king. We come to the book of Judges, and it talks about the foreshadowing of a king. Practically every book leading up to 1 Samuel says Israel will have a king. So here's my question to you. If all of Israel knew that the Lord was anticipating that one day they would have an earthly king, and then they finally come up and they say, hey, can we cash in on our king? Why is Samuel and God, why are they so displeased with the request? Here's, here's what I want you to see. This is the nuance that is required within this chapter. I put it this way. The problem wasn't Israel's request for a king. It was their motivation behind it. Their motivation behind it. And so this request came not out of a place of faith. It came out of a place of fear. Not out of a place of trust in God 
but in a place of misplaced trust in God's created things. They're looking for the wrong king in the wrong places with the wrong motives. And this whole story from chapter 7, what we looked at last week, and chapter 8, looking at what we see this week, is meant to reveal that to you, to reveal their motives behind this. And so we see in the previous chapter, it's literally a story of Israel experiencing a military victory through the hand of God. So again, look at your Bibles, chapter 7, verse 10, it says this. That day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines. He threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Now, here's what's interesting. What did Israel do to gain the victory that day? Nothing. They didn't do anything. God provided the victory. God was the one who saved them. And even at the end of the story, all of Israel, they're saying, God is our great deliverer. God is our king. God is the one who goes into battle before us and wins our battles for us. God is king. And then, by the time we get to the next chapter, they're saying, could you please give us a king? And not only that, here's the reason why. Chapter 8, verse 19. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. With a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. We want to be like all the other nations. We want a king who will just go out and beat the Philistines. And God's saying, I already did that for you. Don't you see? I am meant to be your deliverer. I'm meant to be your king. I'm meant to be your protector. And the reason why Israel was supposed to have an earthly king was so that he could serve as a vice regent under God to uphold God's justice. That's the reason why Israel was meant to have a king. But what they're saying is the real reason we want it is two things. One, we want to be like all the surrounding nations. And number two, we want an earthly king to lead us out into battle. The two things God was meant to be for them. It's so sad. It's so sad. Their source of identity and security is meant to be in God. But they have forgotten that so quickly. And one of the other elements that makes this so tragic is when God called all of Israel out of Egypt, he said, I want you to be holy. That word in your Bible literally means to be set apart, to be unlike all the other nations. So do you see the great irony of their request? We want to be like all the nations. Man, like everything that they're doing, we want to do. And God's saying, no, you're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be unlike the world. In that way, when all the rest of the world is banging their heads on things, and they look over at Israel and they say, why is it they have such peace and contentment and security and hope? What do they got going on that we don't have? In that way, they would be a light to the nations that the whole world would see and know that the Lord is God. And so not only are they rejecting God, they're, they're rejecting their missional mandate, the Great Commission. And my friends, I have to ask you the same question. Are you living more like the world? Are you yearning to be like your friends? Are you yearning to be like all the other nations? Or are you yearning to be like God? Holy, distinct, set apart so that God can use you and usher in others into his kingdom. 
which way are you living your life today? And so pick up with me at verse 7. God says this to Samuel. He says, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you as they've always done. There's nothing new under the sun, folks. They just keep doing the same thing. From the very beginning, I've never been enough for them. From then until now. So think back with me a little bit about the history of Israel all the way back during the time of Exodus. Israel is enslaved, mistreated, and God brings the most powerful nation down to its knees through ten plagues. Not through the doings of Israel. In fact, Israel complains the whole time saying, quit delivering plagues or just making things worse. And yet God delivers them. The shackles fall off and they walk out of Egypt free men and women. And then God brings them to the Yam Suf, the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, and he parts it so that they walk through on dry ground. And God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. And then Moses, he goes up the mountain at Mount Sinai, and admittedly, he takes a little bit longer than they had anticipated. And then Israel says, where's Moses? I don't think he's coming back. Maybe he died. Aaron, here's what you need to do. You need to create a new idol for us to worship so that we can be like all the other nations. Like all the other nations. And then they make their way through the wilderness. And they're complaining, God, we have no food to eat. We have nothing to drink. So God gives them manna to eat. Every time they complain about drink, Moses smacks a rock and fresh water flows out so that they can drink. He promises they're going to the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and with honey. Just hang on. God's going to bring you there. Just put your trust in him. And what do they say? No, we need to go back to Egypt. There's such delicacies and good food there, just like all the other nations. And then within this story, we finally see that maybe Israel is going to put their trust in God. God has just revealed his power through bringing down the Philistines down to their knees, having the great victory, the great battle that they won. And yet after all of that, they say, no, what we really need is an earthly king, just like all the other nations. They don't care a whole lot about being distinct. They just want to be like everyone else. It's much more comfortable. It's much easier to live their lives when they are like everyone else. So here's the question I want to lay at your feet. When you have a God who fights your battles for you like God does, why would you still demand an earthly king? Why do that? Like, what's, what's the motivation behind that sort of request when they have seen the things that God has done? And before you convince yourself that this is an Israel problem and not a you problem, just, just hang on for a second. This is a sons and daughters of Adam problem. Each of us has a sin nature, the traitor within, which compels us, deceives us, which causes us to go after ourselves and not after God like we looked at last week with the two ladders, to glorify ourselves and to not glorify God. And Israel is doing those types of things. 
But here's, here's what I want you to notice. Look really closely with me at the history of how Israel has treated God up to this point, from their deliverance in Egypt until this moment. Not once did they totally reject God. Never did they totally reject God. It was just God and. It was God plus. It's God, you're great and all, but I also just need this little thing over here in order to be happy. And so here's, here's the way I put it in your note sheet. We reject God not always by walking away from him, but by adding to him. By adding to him. And so our orthodoxy, what we believe, doesn't always carry through on our orthopraxy how we live that out. In many ways, we're functional Christian atheists. Yes, God, you're sovereign. Yes, you're in total control. But also, I just need these things over here in order to have a sense of security and comfort and, and hope and fulfillment in my life. God, you're great. You're great. But I really need these things in order to be happy. Do you see the ways in which Israel's doing this? And once again, my question to you is, is this resonating with you? Do you live your life this way too? If you're honest with yourself and you're looking at that mirror, do you see yourself in this story? So what does this look like for us today? What are the ways in which we call out for a king? Like obviously, we're not shouting for a new king. The election cycle's next year. But you know, at least for us right now, what are we doing? What are we doing, friends? Here's one of the ways that we search for a king in our lives. This way, God plus fill in the blank equals happiness, security, and fulfillment. You fill in that blank. God plus. So let's think of a couple of ways that we might do this today. We might say something like, God's great and all, but what I really need to have is a loving spouse in order to fulfill my needs. That's what I need. I, I need someone else other than God who totally loves me and who totally takes care of all my needs. That's the thing that I need. Then I will be full. But look, friends, that's not a good reason to get married because you are going to have such lofty expectations of that person who will never be able to satisfy you the way that only God can. And so if that's the motivation of your heart, they're going to fulfill me, they're going to complete me, they're going to give me everything I need, all that love and affection that I need, in order to feel full, I'm going to find that in a spouse. You will not. You will not find that in your spouse. I'm telling you, I married up, all right? You will not find it in your spouse. And so for those of you who are contemplating marriage, Here's something I want to lay at your feet. Here's a compelling reason to enter into marriage. Because you are convinced that you can expand God's kingdom better together than you can apart. You are convinced that you can make the glory of God, you can make much of Jesus better together than you can apart. That's a compelling reason to get married, friends. Not because this person's going to complete you, in ways that only God can, they will not satisfy your soul. Here's another way that we might do this. 
You might say something like, God's great and all, but, but I have to have a successful career like all of my other peers. So maybe some of you, you're, you're in your middle age, or maybe you're closer to me, like in your mid-30s, and you're starting to look around, and you're noticing that a lot of your peers are a little bit ahead of you in terms of what you think is a good expectation for someone in their 30s. It's like, man, they have a mortgage. They own a house, or at least their house owns them, but you know what I'm saying, right? They have a house, or they're getting married. They've got kids. They've got a career advancement. They got that promotion at work. And look at me, I don't, I don't have those things. So you say, God, you're great and all, but what you really need to do is to catch me up. You got to give me the desires of my heart, otherwise I'm just not going to feel full. You might say, God, you're great and all, but what I really need is beauty. What I really need is greater levels of influence. What I really need is greater health. I need you to answer that prayer that I can have greater health like I did in my youth. And so it's always this kind of conditional offer to follow God. God, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And we do it all the time. And so that's what all these examples have in common. They're not an outright rejection of God. It's just God and. God plus. And in the New Testament, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he picks up on this theme when he says this. James chapter 4, verse 3. You do not have because you do not ask. Some of you, the reason why God isn't answering your prayer is because you haven't made the request. Ask it of God. God loves to give good gifts to his children, but he continues. He also says, but some of you do not have because even when you do ask, you ask like an adulterer. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, what is adultery, friends? That's when you find a sense of fulfillment or joy outside of the marriage covenant that you've made with your spouse. And so here's the image that, that James is bringing to mind through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, some of you have the audacity to go before God, the one that you've covenanted yourself to, where God said, I will be your God, you will be my people, you and your descendants after you, that's all of us, that's every person in this room who has said, Jesus is the Lord of my life, I've made a covenant to God, but God, you're great, you're awesome, but you're not quite fulfilling my needs. So I would really like for you to facilitate something where I can fulfill my needs somewhere else. Think about that image. That's like going up to your own spouse and saying, I love you. I'm not going to leave the marriage. But what I would really like is for you to go and talk to one of your girlfriends to set up a sexual encounter between the two of us to fulfill my needs. Do you see the scandal in that? That's what James is saying. That's what Samuel is saying. It's not a total rejection of God. It's just God and. And so many of us, friends, so many of us live our lives just like that. We do exactly the same things. So God considers Israel's demand for a king to be a total rejection of him. And now look at, with me at what God says next to Samuel about Israel. Because this is what you can expect from any king that you give your heart to outside of God. Chapter 8, starting at verse 9. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. 
Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take, circle, highlight, underline, your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. Verse 12, some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take, circle, highlight, underline, your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your field and your vineyard and your olive groves. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. You, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from your king that you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. Do you feel it? Six times, take, 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 take. And this is a fascinating word. It's the Hebrew word leka. Say leka. It's really interesting because last week we learned about kabod, right? And I shared with you that there's basically three ways that kabod is translated in your Bible. Glory, weight, or, or, or light. Those are the three main ways that kabod is translated. But leka is different in that it's not just three ways. There's at least 15 different ways that this word is translated in your Bible. But I want to share just a couple of them with you because I want you to see what the author is doing through the inspiration of God when laying this out for us. Leka could be translated as to take or to grasp or to capture or to acquire or to buy or get this, to get married, to take a husband, to take a wife. And it's that last one I just want us to meditate on just for a moment. When two people get married, they, they say to each other, I am yours and you are mine. That's possessive language, right? We will covenant ourselves to one another. You're stuck with me. Julie and I like to say that to each other. You're stuck with me, no matter what comes. That's the commitment that we made. I'm going to put your needs in front of my own. I'm going to elevate you to the best of my ability, covenant myself to you, give of myself to you. That's the promises that you make in a marriage. And so God is playing off of this word, leka, saying, this earthly king is going to make such lofty promises to you. I will covenant myself to you. I will give myself to you. Just give yourself over to me. But in the end, he will take, 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 take. That's what you will get if you covenant yourself to anything other than God, regardless of what it is, your career, your marriage, your beauty, your fame, your success, what's in your bank account, give to me and I will give back to you. I will bless your life. I will only give to you. But here's what will happen in the end, friends. If you give yourself over to any one of those idols, it will take, 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 take. That's the end result of any other idol that you worship other than God. So let me show you the irony of how this story ends. Next week, we're going to see this. We're going to see Saul in all of his glory, right? And he is a fine specimen. 
He is head and shoulders above everyone else. Beautiful to look at. And here's what's so interesting. He's everything that Israel asked for in a king. But here's where the story ends, which is so, so ironic. He will die at the hands of, do you know who? The Philistines. Now that's ironic, isn't it? Because the way the story started was God, through no intervention of Israel, delivering his people out of that battle unscathed. God was their king, their great victor. And here comes Saul, the earthly king that they asked for, and more. And he can't even defeat the Philistines. He gets destroyed by them. So here's the warning to us, friends. Be careful what you ask for. Because God just might give it to you. Not as a gift, but as an act of judgment. As an act of judgment. Where God's trying to wake you up and say, don't you see? Don't you understand? If you put your heart in that, if you worship that, if you give yourself over to that, you're going to realize that everything you've ever wanted is nothing you wanted at all. And it will turn into ash into your mouth. But you know what? Some of you, you just think you're the exception to the rule. And so I'm just going to meet you farther down the line when you're lying flat on your face. And in that moment, you might be ready to repent and to turn back to me. But I think at this moment, I just have to give you over to this. I have to allow you to experience for yourself the foolishness of your own choices. And so as an act of judgment, God gives those things to you. And that's what he does in this story. He gives Israel exactly what they want, even though he knows it's not in their best interest. That it will only result in terrible tragedy. And so it's so sad. So here's, here's the plain main thing I put in your note sheet. Every king but God enslaves you. Every king but God enslaves you. That's verse 17. The net result of everything we've looked at is you yourselves will become his slaves. And so the end result of choosing an earthly king is that Israel, in effect, will be back in Egypt. <laughs> They'll be back enslaved once again, right where they started. And once again, we are reminded of the repeated cycle that we read throughout all of Scripture where Israel is delivered at the hand of God. They rejoice. Thank you, Lord. They enter into the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey, and there they forget about God. And when they forget about God, God humbles the proud. He relinquishes his hand of blessing. It brings about destruction on their lives. Then with their tail between their legs, they cry out to God, God, deliver us. God does deliver them. And then they have peace. In their humility, God exalts them. But around and around and around and around it goes. Doing the same things. And the question is, will we learn from the past mistakes of others? Or are we going to just have to figure it out ourselves through our own foolishness? And making those mistakes ourselves. Every other king but God enslaves you. So I want you to think about this with me. Uh, many of you here, you are in your teens and your 20s. And you're tempted to put your identity in things like your grades or the reputation that you have with your peers or getting into the right school or your body image. And you're starting to realize that all of that is a hamster wheel that never ends. 
Are you tired? Some of you here are in your 30s and your 40s. And you're tempted to put your identity in things like your marital status or whether you have a well-paying job or whether you've achieved certain career markers like that of your peers. And you're starting to realize that all of that is a hamster wheel that never ends. Are you tired yet? Some of you are in your 50s and 60s. And you're starting to realize that you have more time behind you than you have time in front of you. And even if you've been relatively successful in your career or in your business, in your aspirations, you're starting to realize that you can't keep up with the pace that you established in your 30s and your 40s. And you're starting to battle feelings of irrelevance, of boredom, of frustration. And all your efforts to find a sense of self-worth within your professional position or within your money or your career or the power that you've accumulated, it's starting to slip through your fingers and you're beginning to wonder, is it worth all the sacrifices that I've made? And you're starting to realize that it's a hamster wheel that never ends. Are you tired? Some of you are in your 70s and your 80s and you're starting to battle health challenges your mobility, and the slow but steady loss of control in your life. And retirement, although it does give you extra time, it also elicits a lot of feelings of emptiness and irrelevance. And you're starting to look back on your life and say, all those sacrifices that I made in my youth, was it worth it? All the decisions that I made up to this point, is it worth it? Or was it a never-ending hamster wheel? Are you tired? I hope you see that whatever you put your identity in, other than God, is going to leave you wanting. It's going to leave you wanting, and I don't want that for you. Regardless of the king that you're pursuing, it always winds up in the same place. Fear, loneliness, and regret. All other earthly kings enslave you. I think about the Jewish philosopher. His name is Arthur Schopenhauer. He writes this. Wealth and fame, and I'll just include any other king that you put your identity in, they're like seawater. The more we drink of them, the thirstier we become. Are you encouraged yet? I hope you're not. I hope you're unsettled. I hope you're challenged to make a change and to realize some of those things that you've placed your identity in will never satisfy your soul. I want you to see how the story ends. Pick up with me at verse 18 in 1 Samuel chapter 8. When that day comes, God says, you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your town. 
And so like I said to you, friends, sometimes the only way God can break your enslavement to an idol is just to give it to you in hopes that eventually you will see the foolishness of that choice and that you would turn back to God and realize he is the only one who can truly give you what you need. No one else can, nothing else can, only God, only God. But in our search for autonomy, oftentimes we reject God as king, just like Israel did. And in doing so, we choose tyranny for our own lives. It's the great lie that every single book, every single page in your Bible is seeking to communicate to you. And so here's the thing, friends. It's far easier to let someone else pay your own dumb tax. It's far easier to let someone else engage in foolish decisions and for you to say, oh my goodness, I shouldn't do that. That's not going to wind up well for me. I'm going to learn from that, from the foolishness of someone else. But most of us are slow learners, and we have to experience it for ourselves. Tim Chester, he puts it this way. He says, it typifies humanity. We reject God as king, even though it means choosing tyranny. We believe Satan's lie that God is a tyrant. We believe we will be more free without God, but we end up enslaved. That's the end result for us. And so here's the sad reality, friends. We would rather have an earthly king who take, 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 takes from us than a cosmic king who gives to us freely of his own accord because he loves you, because you are made in his image and he desires to give good gifts to his children. Years later, Jesus would stand in front of people who, made, who he made and they will say before Jesus, we have no king but Caesar. No king but Caesar. But let's look at this King Jesus for a moment. At the time of the trial, Pilate will ask Jesus whether he is the king of the Jews or not. And he will respond this way. He will say, my kingdom is not of this world. Indicating I'm not like the other kings and kingdoms in this world who take, take, take. My kingdom's not of this world. I have come to give so much so that Jesus says this to his disciples, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus will give himself so fully that he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. We are healed. So what kind of king is this? Look at him, my friends. I want you to see him. This is the same king who had a crown, but it wasn't an earthly crown. It was a crown of thorns. It was the same king who had a robe, but it wasn't a robe of honor. It was a robe that was ripped off of him and sold to the highest bidder when he was on the cross. It was a king who, when his arms were stretched out on the cross, there was a sign above him hail the king of the jews not because they wanted to honor him but because they wanted to mock him and scorn him this is the king who everyone cried out and said this king could save others but he can't even save himself but he could he chose willing willingly to stay why why did he stay because 
what typifies this king over and against all earthly kings is he does not want to take, take, take. He wants to give, give, give. And the only way that he can give to you is if he gives you himself. The leka of marriage, I want to give everything that I have, everything that I am to the people that I love. And so he stays. Why did he stay? Because he saw your face. He saw my face. And it's for that reason that even though he could have called a legion of angels at any moment, at any time, he stayed because he is our one true king. And that's why Jesus would say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's why he says to us, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the leka of Jesus. We heard a story this morning about C.S. Lewis. One of my favorite stories is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which Mr. Beaver is having a conversation with one of the daughters of Adam, Susan, the oldest daughter. And Mr. Beaver says this, he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion, said Mr. Beaver. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king. And so here's what I want to end with this morning. Here's what I want to impress upon your heart. Are you sure that Jesus is your king? Tim Keller says, Jesus is the only king that if you obey, obtain him will satisfy you and whom if you fail him will forgive you. Who is your king? I recognize that much of what I'm saying, I'm preaching to the choir in terms of, is Jesus your king? Sure he is. But are there certain areas of your life where you are saying, God, he's great and all, but what I really need is this. God, you're great, you're awesome, but I just need these additional elements to my life and then I'll be happy. And God wants to say to each and every one of us here, you need to give of yourself to me fully, wholeheartedly, full stop. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.